Many of you will be aware, any day now, my wife is about to give birth to our second child. Hopefully not today, because that would just be awkward for the preaching program. Uh, but by the time my, uh, the, the baby takes uh, its first breath of air, it has approximately one trillion brain cells. And each individual brain cell is capable of performing billions of calculations per second. The math is a little bit beyond me, um, but according to the Daily Mail, which we trust for all things uh, to do with truth, um, if, uh, <laughs> if we were to build a supercomputer using uh, today's technology, the energy required to create the same processing power as the human brain would be equivalent to that of a nuclear power station. Uh, when we're born, we have 300 uh, bones that all uh, slot together. And as we grow into adulthood, these all fuse together to make 206 bones. Stretched end to end, the blood cells in the average human adult body would cover a distance of approximately 60,000 miles. That's the equivalent of at least two trips around the entire circumference of the Earth. The human body is a truly remarkable thing. But, unfortunately, from the moment we're born, our gradual journey towards old age starts. It suddenly struck me the week before last that I was getting older. Not only did I turn 36 on the 3rd of July, but I also find myself reading a commentary in advance of the Roger Federer versus Novak Djokovic Wimbledon final. And uh, one of the commentators felt that at the age of 32, Federer's body was past its best. He thought he was just slightly too old to keep up with the 27-year-old Djokovic. And what's worse, the commentator ended up being proved right. When I watch these sports stars on TV, I think they look really grown up. And then it suddenly dawns on me that I'm actually older than them. The older we get, the more our bodies experience the anacronym, which is humorously used to describe Lotus sports cars. Lots of trouble, usually serious. <laughs> this means that as we get older, all our bodies, uh, all of us, are forced to confront the question, what will happen when I die? So for a religion or a system of belief to hold any water, it must provide a credible answer to this big question. Because the way we understand our ultimate destiny affects our future hope and consequently how we live our lives today. And the Apostle Paul recognises this just before our readings today in verse 19. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then later in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There is simply no consequences. Our expectation of what happens to us when we die affects the meaning we subscribe to our lives now and therefore the moral choices we make as a result. So here in today's section of the Apostles' Creed, we have the first part of the Christian answer to the question of what happens when we die. Next week, we'll be covering the life everlasting but this week, we're going to be focusing on the incredible claim from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And note it doesn't just say, I believe in the resurrection, for that would seem far, he far easier for most people to accept. Instead, it boldly declares, I believe in the resurrection of the body. 
Christians believe that something of our physicality will be carried forward into eternity. As one commentator puts it, Christian belief, uh, Christian belief is more than just a soul resurrection. We believe in a whole resurrection. So how does the Apostle Paul explain the bodily resurrection to the church in Corinth who were heavily influenced by the philosophies of Plato 400 years earlier? Plato uh, saw that death um, was the soul's final escape from the imprisonment of our physical bodies. So that means that the soul was good, but the bodies were bad. Well, this is not how Paul understands it. And so he decides to look at the physical world that God has created. And he uses two agricultural illustrations to explain himself. The first fruits and seeds. And these will form the basis of our two headings today, uh, which you'll find in, in the sheets in front of you. So we'll start by looking at the pattern of the fruit and then we'll look at the promise of the seed. To begin with, I want us to see that the fruit of Adam is death. Just as verse 22 says, for as in Adam, all die. It's a preliminary point, really. But if we head back to the book of Genesis, you'll remember that after God had finished creating the world, culminating in Adam and Eve, who he tasked with being his stewards on the earth, God declared creation was very good. And when God says something is very good, it means it's absolutely brilliant. However, when Adam and Eve rejected God's instructions, choosing instead to become self-employed, making themselves their own bosses, they were separated from his loving care. They were cast away from God's presence and separated from the tree of life. And so death entered the world at that stage. Now the Bible teaches that because we are created in the pattern of Adam, our natural state is also to reject God's rule. This is the essence of sin And so in Adam, we are all subject to the curse of death. Just as Romans 6 says in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Now it's understandable that when we're faced with the sadness of seeing loved ones die, we comfort ourselves with the idea that death is just part of the natural circle of life. But if this is really true and death is nothing to be scared of, then why do we invest billions of pounds in the pharmaceutical and medical industries trying to avoid it? Some of you may have read a book called A Thousand Splendid Sons by Khalid Hosseini. It's set in Afghanistan and it spans a period of 50 years following the life of a woman called Mariam. Mariam is subject to a miserable life. She's isolated in every sense of the world, of the word. Uh, this includes having to endure daily tortures from her abusive husband, such as having to chew rocks until her teeth break. Yet when Mariam is sentenced to death for killing her vicious husband while he was trying to strangle his second wife, just before her execution, Mariam still mourns the fact that she will never again feel the close connection with those human beings she did have the opportunity to love. The author, Khaled Hassini, recognises that the finality of death and the abrupt way it brings relationships to an end still feels unnatural, no matter how much suffering a person has had to face on earth. And the Bible is clear too that death is abhorrent. 
Verse 26 describes death as the last enemy that needs to be destroyed. You'll remember how just before Jesus brings his friend Lazarus back from the dead, the sight of Lazarus' lifeless corpse makes Jesus weep. Death is an offence to God. He doesn't want anyone to perish, 2 Peter says. Rather, he wants people to repent and enjoy a living relationship with him. Yet God will not force his love upon anyone. If people insist on rejecting him as beings created in the pattern of Adam, death is the one-way railroad they're heading down. But the good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to bring, is that through his death on the cross, he has created a junction which gives us access to a different track. The fruit of Jesus is eternal life. As verse 22 says, in Christ all will be made alive. Or as it says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. And Paul wants the people in Corinthians, the church there, to know this for sure. So he describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now we'll deal with what it means to have fallen asleep in a minute. But first I want to talk to you about the term first fruits. I'm not sure how many of you here are large-scale farmers. Um, but uh, for those not familiar with the term first fruits, it speaks of the first sample of a crop. And this indicates the nature and the quality of the rest of the crop which is to follow. If the first fruits taste sweet, then the sweetness of the rest of the crop is also guaranteed. The harvest to come follows the pattern of the first fruits. So we can be assured that because Jesus defeated the last enemy death, if we're in Christ, we will do too. This means that when we do mourn at the funeral of a loved one who is a believer, who died in Christ, we have much more than a vague and fuzzy hope that everything will work out in the end. We grieve in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. And much more, because Jesus was raised bodily, we also will be raised bodily too. We need to move beyond these Eastern philosophies that see the body as bad and the soul as good. Just think about it for a second. If God invested all that work in creating a physical world, why would he just suddenly abandon it when he's already described it as good? God is in the business of redeeming, not abandoning. So you might remember in the Gospel of John how after rising from the dead, Jesus enjoys a fish fry up for breakfast with his friend Peter. Jesus' body resurrection affirms the dignity of our physical bodies. Our five senses of taste, touch, hearing, sight and smell, they're all gifts from God which we should treasure and use to serve him. They're not to be abused or taken for granted. Just ask anyone who is missing or gradually losing one of their senses and they'll tell you what a blessing they are. This means what we do with our bodies now matters. And Paul particularly goes to great lengths to apply this to the area of sexual immorality earlier in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body. 
But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? So we mustn't think that we can continue in sexual sin and enjoy the fullness of a relationship within God empowered by his Spirit. So if some of you are feeling distant from God and you know that this is an area you struggle with, can I encourage you to pray with uh, either myself after the service or in the back right-hand corner at the end of the service over there, which is available for any types of prayer. Well, now I want to deal with uh, the slightly thorny issue of those who have fallen asleep. And hopefully uh, you're still with me so far, uh, and you're not subject to that condition now. Um, but we all know sleep is very important. And for me, in a few days, I have little doubt that it will be a very pressing concern. However, the sleep Paul is referring to in verse 20 is different because the obvious question to ask is if Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the harvest to follow, what happens to those who die before this final harvest occurs? This was a question that the Thessalonian church were particularly concerned about as well. They were worried about the fate of their loved ones before Jesus had actually returned. And perhaps some of you are wondering, what's, what's the condition of your loved ones who have died? What is it now? Well, in an odd way, such questions remind me of some of the questions I had to ask as part of my control systems engineering degree at Sheffield University. If I knew that the input to a system was X and the output was Y, well, what in heaven and earth is going on in this middle phase? Well, the Bible doesn't go into tremendous detail about what happens during this middle holding pattern between death and resurrection, other than to describe it like being asleep. So perhaps just like one wakes from a normal sleep without really understanding the passage of time, the same is true for those who have died. One thing we do know, however, is that when the criminal on the cross next to Jesus said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Therefore, those who die, having trusted in Jesus, have every reason to rest in peace now, knowing that they are firmly held within the conscious love of God and and the conscious presence of Jesus. The final thing I want to say, though, about those who currently sleep in death is that everyone who has died will remain alert to Jesus' ultimate wake-up call. John chapter 5 says, A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. The Gospel writer John is very clear. Though some might wish otherwise, you can't keep pressing the snooze button to avoid the judgment of Jesus' wake-up call. Those who have rejected Jesus' love and died in the pattern of Adam are destined, tells us, for condemnation. While those who trust Jesus died for them in their place will rise again following the pattern of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Now, Tom Wright neatly summarises much of what I've said in this kind of death, sleep, resurrection by saying this statement. And it might be useful for you to remember Christians believe in life after, life after death. So at this junction, before we move to our next point, 
Can I ask you, which pattern are you following? Are you following the pattern of Adam that leads to death? Or are you following the pattern of Christ which leads to life? If you know you're headed down the wrong track, but don't know how to change the points along the way, then I'd love to chat with you after the service. Well, next, let's consider the second heading, the promise of the seed. Verse 35 says, But some of you ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And it seems a fair question to ask, doesn't it? It's certainly one the Apostle Paul expects his readers to be asking. That's why he gives voice to their concerns. Because if our bodies are sown in death, it seems more like an unpromising end rather than a promise of a new beginning. This time, the input into the system, death, doesn't seem to match the output of the system, resurrection. In other words, if we die trusting in Jesus, how does this promise of bodily resurrection work? After all, even the atoms that I'm standing here talking to you now, well, they will be completely renewed in seven years' time. So in what sense can we say that our bodies will be raised from the dead? Well, this is a topic over which much theological ink has been uh, spilt. And uh, people often like to claim that those who believed in a bodily resurrection 2,000 years ago, well, somehow they were less advanced and therefore they're more likely to believe in these superstitious hopes. But here with Paul's preemptive question, we see this simply wasn't the case. The resurrection of the body was just as remarkable to Paul as it is to us now. After all, they were far more used to seeing the effects of death and the body then than we are today. The concept of a physical embodied existence after death was the stuff of fables and thought laughable to the educated in the Greco-Roman culture. But Paul wasn't dumb either. So he counters the question by once again turning his readers' attention away from their foolishly limited minds and towards the evidential creative power of God. Verse 37 says, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. In other words, each seed is a seed of hope, which carries within itself, within that tiny kernel, enormous potential. And to illustrate Paul's point, I've devised a small horticultural quiz uh, with the help of a gardening expert at our ATM congregation. So, hopefully, um, some uh, seed. Ah, okay, there we are. So, um, uh, what type of seed is that? Acorn seed. And uh, what type of tree does it grow into? Yes, I've got a, a pre-prepared branch here. This is an, an oak branch. I promise I uh, got permission before cutting this one down. Um, next one. Um, what type of seed is this? This is a little bit more difficult. Anybody know? It is a lily. It's a lily. Okay. Okay. Next one, please. What type of seed is that? It's a sunflower. I like this. I could be, could be Paul Daniels. <laughs> it's a sunflower seed and it grows into a sunflower plant. And then finally, these are very, very small. Some of the smallest seeds known. What type of seed might that be? A mustard seed, which grows much more effective than this, but it was the only one we could find. Um, so this is a mustard, a mustard plant. Okay. Well, in all of the examples that we've had, 
if you were just to inspect the seed, you could not imagine the final result unless you'd actually seen it. Who would have thought that by placing a lifeless seed into the fertilised soil, it would grow into such a magnificent body? Paul says in verse 38, to each kind of seed, God gives its own body. Each seed carries within itself the potential to grow into a body designed to witness to God's glory just as God has determined. And to make his point, Paul takes the Corinthians on a grand uh, tour through the splendour and range of God's creative power. The fleshy bodies of humans, animals, birds and flesh have a different type of splendour to the heavenly bodies of the sun, the moon and the stars. Every part of God's creation is splendid in its own unique way. And if God is responsible for creating the universe from scratch, what makes us now think that he can't take the seeds of our dead bodies and transform them into something more glorious? Yeah, if we stop for a minute to think about the acorn seed, if uh, Brian could uh, just put that back on the screen again, um, when it rises through the soil eventually... Well, it can't turn into a sunflower plant, can it? There, you see, there is both continuity and discontinuity in the seed that is sown and the plant that results. And the same is true for the bodies we sow in death and our resurrection bodies. Think about the continuity for a moment. We must think about the seed that we are preparing to be sown. As explained before, we can't sow our body trusting in Adam and expect to be raised in Christ. But once we've accepted Jesus as our Lord, when we live to honour God with our bodies in this life, in a sense, we're storing up riches for the resurrected bodies we'll one day inherit. Potential is being stored up in the seed. So we can't pretend that our bodies don't matter. God wants us to use them to reflect his glory now. So perhaps, in response to this talk, some of us may need to reflect on our alcohol, cigarette, or even caffeine consumption. If we're overindulging in any of these items to our body's own detriment, or in a way that negatively impacts the bodies of others, are we really honouring the unique way that God's created each of us? But equally, there is also discontinuity. In verse 42 and verse 44, uh, Paul reminds us that the body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. In today's image-conscious world, it's easy to believe that if your body isn't perfect then you're a second-class citizen. But here the Bible gives us more uh, mere mortals cause for tremendous hope. It tells us that whilst our bodies and the way we treat them is important, we're not to idolise them by living our lives pretending that the body is all there is. Just as the Apostle Paul said to his protege Timothy, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So if you struggle with your body image or with a disability now, then as a Christian, you can look forward to that discontinuity, to the resurrected body that will be free from all previous troubles. 
The only characteristic that will be carried forward into the resurrection will be that positive refinement of character that the suffering you have enjoyed here on earth in Christ has brought. For this you will be honoured when you're raised in glory. And finally, I want to finish by uh, clearing up one potential area of confusion in verse 44 where it says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. The Greek here is not cutting against the grain of everything I've been saying about the bodily resurrection. Rather, it's a reference to the pure source with which our resurrected bodies are empowered. It's a reminder that even though I'm a Christian now and God's Holy Spirit lives within me, it's the power that dwells within me, in this life, my natural body still suffers from the restraining consequences of the fall. And therefore, my natural body is still prone to the urges and temptations to sin. So, uh, having the Holy Spirit living within me is a bit like putting highly refined rocket fuel into an old Robin Reliant. The Robin Reliant suddenly might go faster than the Porsche at the traffic lights, but it's not really, if you look at it, equipped to deal with the rocket fuel's full potential. For the rocket fuel to be used effectively, it needs to be put into a rocket that has been specially designed to handle the fuel's explosive power. And so it will be when all Christians are raised bodily. Not only will we, will we be totally empowered by God's Holy Spirit and free from all other pollutants, the spiritual body God closes with will finally be fit for the purpose of serving and worshipping God as we would wish. So by way of conclusion, let me remind you of what it means to say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. It means that we acknowledge that death is inevitable for us as humans created in the pattern of Adam. But new life is available for those who trust in the pattern of Christ. Because Christ rose again as the first fruits, our Bodily resurrection in the future is guaranteed. And God has given the body special honour and dignity in raising Christ. He didn't have to do that, but he did bodily. And just as a seed of hope, um, of the hope to come, so we are also to look forward to the day when we will be fully raised bodily to be with Christ and to serve and worship him into the everlasting life.